one of the most uh, wonderful but challenging spiritual principles that we uh, live with as believers is the reality that God is never adverse to altering what's going on in our lives. Let me say that again just in case you were turning or distracted. God is not adverse to altering what is going on in our lives. And he does that to refine us, and he does it to conform us to himself. Because his highest ideal, the, the, the greatest goal that he has for us as his children is to make us like him. The thing he wants most is for you and I to look like him, think like him, act like him, live like him, and honor him. And the more willing we are to trust him and the more willing we are to serve him, the more willing he is to introduce change into our circumstances. Now, that's not an issue of him being cruel, and it's not an issue of him toying with us and and stretching us out. It's an issue of him uh, becoming sure that he can rely on us to trust him and to follow him and, and to do whatever it will take in any situation to bring him glory and to bring other people closer to Christ. So he will do what it takes. He will do what he pleases in order to change and move things around. Sometimes we stay steady for a long time. Sometimes he lets us just walk on a straight path. Other times life is upside down. How many know that's true? God's not cruel. God's not saying, look at my little puppets, look at what I can do with them. Dance, little puppet, come on, here we can do this. I'm God, you're not, so I'm going to play. God's not doing that. He's not cruel. He's a loving God. He's a gracious God. He's a patient God. So he brings things and allows things in our lives sometimes that will just mix things up because he has a greater purpose in mind. Now, that principle is proven all through the book of Acts. From the apostles at Pentecost to them getting arrested and being thrown into jail, to, to Stephen's defense of Christ, to Philip going out of the desert, the Ethiopian, all throughout, we're going, to, we're going to continue to see it as we go through the book. Every time, God kind of changes what we would expect to be normal. And, and even though the apostles show remarkable resiliency and flexibility that they hadn't prior to the book of Acts, while we know that there is an obvious effectiveness that God can use in our lives and our ministry when he does this, that concept of spiritual adaptability is not something that we tend to gravitate toward with joy. That's something where we tend to say, oh great, the Lord's changing things around again. It's human nature to like what we like. It's human nature to... to to like what we've always done and to like what we know and to like what we can control. But here's the problem. You and I as believers are not controlled by human nature anymore. We're controlled by the spiritual nature. We're under the power of God and we're under the control of the Holy Spirit. So while our human nature is strong, our human nature doesn't rule. Our spiritual nature rules, which means there needs to be a dramatic shift in the way that we think about what God's doing. Now, as we mature in our faith, and as we learn to trust, and as we learn to love the Lord on a deeper level, we know that our faith's going to be stretched. That's not a question, that's a given. 
And that means that what we want and what we expect will often get changed. Now, we can fight that, and we can respond with anxiety and doubt and fear and resentment and complaint, but we know that there's no way that if we respond that way, that that's going to please the Lord. Or we can obey, and we can do it kind of begrudgingly. All right, God, I'll obey. Ever said that one? Ever made that face like you just ate a lemon? Like, all right, God, I'll do it. And, and that's technical obedience, but heaven's not going to smile about that. Or the third option is that we learn to be gratified when God mixes things up, not only because we love and trust him, but because we see his purpose through spiritual eyes. We recognize that he'll be glorified even more and that his gospel will advance even further and that we'll become more like him. So the question kind of at the outset this morning is, how do we react and what does it do to our faith and commitment when the Lord changes things around? And even before we answer that, we first need to understand why God does this in the first place. We need to understand his rationale because when he uses change, it's designed to influence our response. And we're called in Philippians 4 to be content in all circumstances, but even Paul says, I had to learn that. I learned to be content in all circumstances. It's not something that just happened and I'm okay and I'm saved, so everything's great. He says, I had to to learn this. I had to watch how the Lord worked and I had to see why he did what he did and I had to adjust my thinking to, to understand that his purposes are greater than mine and I had to look at the end result and the situations that he worked to get to a certain place. And then I learned after all that time that my goal is to be content in anything God does. Now he had been through that type of life change himself. We saw that the last two weeks. But there were still other people that need to understand it because in Acts, as we get to chapter 10, there's still a whole group of people that is still ingrained in their spiritual tradition and their personal stubbornness. And that group is the Jewish people. In fact, if there's one thing that should grab our attention as we go through the book of Acts, and I hope you've seen this and it really hit me again this week, is that everything is out of the normal pattern of how it had been before. When you come to the book of Acts, everything up to Acts, all the way to the end of Luke, everything had been a certain way. Everything had been according to the law, how God had worked it, and then Jesus comes along and he radically mixes it up. But the people don't yet quite get it. Even his apostles don't quite get it. And then Acts hits. And all of a sudden, everything that was normal becomes abnormal. And everything that was abnormal becomes the norm. Now, there are at least four examples of this. I want to encourage you to write things down this morning. Let's interact with the text so you're not just listening, even though you listen very, very well, that it's a little bit disarming sometimes. Either that or you're asleep. can't tell which. But I think you're awake. Four examples of this in the book of Acts. First of all, the focus changes from just the Jews being the focus of God's attention to now the Jews and Gentiles being introduced to grace through Jesus Christ. It goes from all about the Jews, God's chosen people, how God's working, how God's guiding, how God's giving them the law, how God's protecting them, how God's disciplining them. 
It's all about the Jews. We get to Acts, all of a sudden it's about the Jews and the Gentiles. And when you look at the growth of the early church, it was less Jewish converts and more Gentiles who were receiving the gospel. The primary reason for that is the Jews were still resistant. That is shown in how they treated Christ. Some believed, some followed, but very few. Because remember, when Acts 2 starts, how many people are there following Christ? Tell me. Oh, come on. We've been through this. 120. That's it. All the multitudes that followed Christ, all the people that got healed, all the people that were here of leprosy and, and, and hemorrhaging and even death. Where were all those people? Because when Jesus dies and is resurrected and appears to his apostles, and then he goes back to heaven, there are 120 that are left. Now, throughout the Old Testament, God had shown Israel favor. God had helped Israel and had called them to trust him, but they rejected him. So now as we get to Acts, we see people from all kinds of nations responding. At Pentecost, people from all over the known world. Then we get into the passage. We see people from Samaria and Ethiopia and Italy and on and on as the book progresses out into Asia Minor. We'll talk about it in a couple minutes. I don't think any of us can comprehend just how radical that shift was. I don't think we have any concept, and I'm not being pejorative here. I'm just stating a fact. I don't think we have any concept of how radical a shift it was for the Jews who were called God's chosen people but never appreciated it and never yielded to it. So the focus changes from just Jews to Jews and Gentiles. Second, the focus changes from trying to obey the law to trusting in God's grace. Now, nobody was ever saved by the law because obeying the law was unattainable because of sin. Hebrews 11 even says that, he, that Abraham was saved through faith in God. And that's really the whole point of the whole te- Old Testament. That's the whole reason why Jesus came as our sacrifice. But the Jews never understood it. They never realized the futility of our efforts. And even the Pharisees who condemned Jesus and put him to death, they should have understood their own failure as teachers of the law. They should have gotten, look, we can never obey this. We'll never be good enough. But they lied to the people and they lied to themselves when they should have recognized the whole reason Messiah's here is to deliver us because we can't do it on our own. Paul explains it in Romans 8. He says what the law couldn't do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so the requirement of the law might be fulfilled who don't walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Jesus satisfied the law because we couldn't. But the Jews never understood that. Now we see a shift from people trying to obey the law to trusting in Christ. Third, the focus shifts from the priests to the Holy Spirit. The priests had been the interpreters. They had been the teachers. They had been the spiritual guidance. They had been the ones who interceded for the people in prayer. By the time we get to the end of Luke, they're not doing it well. They're corrupt. They're changing the law. They're doing it for their own ego. It has nothing to do with the Lord. It has everything to do with self. So God, at the end of Luke and at the start of Acts, changes it up. And now the Holy Spirit descends, and he fulfills those roles in a perfect way. 
Now he instructs us in the word and he indwells us and is our helper. And it says in Hebrews 10 that Jesus now becomes the great and final high priest. We don't need another priest. We don't need somebody to stand in the way and say, well, I'll be the one that'll pray to you or we'll pray to a saint or we'll pray to Mary. No, you pray to Jesus because he is the high priest and there's no need for anybody else. So there's a shift from priest to spirit. And then the fourth shift, which is a little bit more subtle, is the shift from man's control to the spirit's leading. Now that was true for both the Jews and the apostles. Pharisees had manipulated the law. They had changed it to promote their own agenda. The people hadn't said anything about it because the people didn't care. They didn't care that the law was changed because they had no desire to obey the law, they had rebelled against it all the way back to Sinai. Even the apostles who were walking with Christ had reinforced man's attempt to control rather than to trust. All the way up to John 21, when Jesus meets them on the beach after the resurrection, and he looks at Peter, who was the biggest control freak of all of them, and he says, do you really love me? The question really was, do you really trust me? Because I saw what you did. When Judas and his army came, you cut off Malchus's ear and you tried to get ready to fight. And then I called you down and then you followed me trying to figure out how you're going to work this situation. And then when push came to shove and somebody confronted you, you denied me. And the third time you swore while you were looking at me that you had never seen me before. And, and then when, when I was resurrected, you ran down, you tried to figure out the situation, you ran back. Peter, you've been a mess. You're emblematic of the problem that man is always trying to control rather than to trust. And then we get to Acts 1 and 2, and the change is so dramatic. Most embodied in the apostles who go from wanting it their way to saying, Lord, whatever you want, we'll do it. You want to take us there, we'll go. You want us to stand up for you and be arrested, we'll do it. You want us to watch Stephen be martyred? We're going to keep going out and talking about you. We're we're with you the whole way. Now, this whole shift, these four shifts, and this particular shift, is most prominent when we get to Acts 10 and 11. Now, this is a very long chapter, and honestly, we could preach months of sermons about this particular chapter but we're not going to. And in fact, this introduction was about half the message because we had to get context. But let me just give you the basic premise of Acts chapter 10, and then we're going to establish some principles out of it. The basic premise of Acts 10 is that Peter has to understand, and Peter really is a a proxy for the rest of the Jewish nation, but Peter has to understand and accept the fact that the Lord is altering the direction of the ministry and the Lord is showing him and the rest of the Jewish nation the all-inclusive nature of the offer of salvation. Now, it's interesting because the last two weeks we looked at chapter 9 and we talked about the conversion of Saul and it's interesting how quickly the Spirit moves us away 
from Saul's conversion and all this emphasis on the great apostle who will become Paul and who will be the minister to the Gentiles and will write half of the New Testament. But all of a sudden, after his conversion, at the end of chapter 9, we don't see any more of Paul for a chapter and a half. And quickly, the Spirit shifts us from Paul's conversion to Peter's new calling. Now, that reminds us that while Paul was going to be the evangelist to the Gentiles, that the Jewish nation, the Jewish believers, still needed to understand the change that God was instituting. Because the Lord is proving at this point, and this is a key point for our next two weeks, and as we head into Easter and we start to think about, who am I going to invite to come hear the gospel? As we head into that time of year, we have to understand again and again and again and again and again that the gospel is available to anyone who trusts in Christ. And that was absolutely unthinkable to the Jews. But here's Peter, the one that Christ had chosen to institute the launch of the church, and God reinforces this message. Now, at this point, he's a prime candidate because he has a couple advantages over a Pharisee. He was not ingrained in defending Judaism. He was a fisherman from Galilee. So he hadn't been trained and schooled and and experienced like the Pharisees were, like Paul was. And, And he had seen firsthand the power of God to save people, including the Gentiles. So even though he initially kind of protests what God is doing, he quickly understands the potential of God's grace to save lives throughout the world. Now, the chapter, chapter 10, we're going to read parts of it, opens in Caesarea. Caesarea, if you have ever seen the map of Israel, if you can just imagine it, if you ever want, my wife showed me this last night, if you ever want to think about the map of Israel, just use your hand. Or if you're looking at it like this. So this would be the Mediterranean. This would be Egypt. This is Israel. The, De- the Sea of Galilee is up here. The Dead Sea is down Don't you love our amazing graphics this morning? This is powerful. The technology in this church is phenomenal, all right? So if you've got there, everybody put your hand up like this so I'm not the only one doing this. See what I can get you to do? Isn't that amazing? All right, so I'll do it this way so you can see it. So if you look at that, right here is Caesarea. Okay, look at your hand. Don't look at me. Right here is Caesarea, right at the top of your second finger. Jerusalem is right here in the middle of your palm. So, Peter is up in Caesarea. Okay, everybody got that? You'll never forget that every time you look at your hand, you'll think of Israel now. Caesarea was on the northwest coast of the Mediterranean. And it was the seat of the Roman government in Israel. Now, stay with me because this is important. It was the seat of the Roman government in Israel because the Romans were occupying Israel. So this is where most of the Gentiles are going to be. Because all the Italians had come in, all the commanders, like Cornelius, a centurion, a man over a hundred soldiers, all the Italians were up on the the northwest coast of Israel. So Peter is there. That's no coincidence. And in Caesarea, we see this man, chapter 10, verse 1, named Cornelius. He was a believer. He, He followed the Lord. And God sends an angel to him. We're just going to skim the first eight verses. God sends an angel to him to find Peter. Excuse me, Peter was not in Caesarea at this point. He was in Joppa. Look back at your hand. Okay, Joppa's 
Just drop down a little bit, right at the base where your second finger meets your palm. Peter's in Joppa, Cornelius is in Caesarea. And God sends an angel to Cornelius and says, you go find Peter in Joppa. 36 miles south, if you walk it at an average pace, it'd take you about 14 hours. So he says, I want you to go find Peter in Joppa. Cornelius sends three men. And he sends the three men to find Peter, who's unaware at this point that anybody's coming for him. Now let's pick it up. You've listened well so far. Let's pick it up. Chapter 10, verse 9. On the next day, as these men were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. But he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. And he saw the sky opened up and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. A voice came to him and said, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter, verse 14, said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Again, a voice came to him a second time. What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Now, while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. And calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was also called Peter, was staying there. While Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you, but get up, go downstairs, and accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. Now, there's a lot here. And as we see, well, let, actually, stop for a second. Let me, let me not go to the point yet. Peter goes, after verse 20, to meet Cornelius. And Cornelius has a whole bunch of people that are ready to meet him. He's got a group that's come over to his house to meet this apostle Peter. Let's pick it back up at verse 27. And as he talked with him, he entered and found many Peters, uh, Peter entered and found many people assembled. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. This is why I came without even raising any objection when I was sent for. So I ask, what reason you've sent for me? Cornelius said, four days ago to this hour, I was praying my house during the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in shining garments and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Therefore, send to Joppa and invite Simon, who is also called Peter, to come to you. He's staying at the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. So I sent for you immediately. And you've been kind enough to come. Now then, we are all here present before God to hear all that you've been commanded by the Lord. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. All right, now there's a lot here. And we see this unorthodox method that God is using to have a Gentile convert, get this now, a Gentile convert is calling for Jesus' most closest disciple, who is a Jew, to confirm to the Gentile 
that God is supposed to give the gospel to the Gentiles. You would think it would be the other way around. You would think God would direct Peter, go up to Caesarea and find Cornelius. He's a centurion with a lot of influence. And you need to tell him the gospel's now going to the Gentiles and, and we need to get a plan together. That's not what happens. God says to an Italian, go find the Jew and go tell him that the gospel's supposed to come to me. You say, well, why would God do it that way? Why, why would God orchestrate that? And why would God give Peter this strange vision of this sheet that, that drops from heaven and it's full of unclean animals? And then while Peter is having this vision, God says to him, you eat that. Now, the law didn't permit that. But again, there is change happening. And this is less about a new mindset about the law than it is about Peter understanding the scope of God's grace. And as we look at that, there is great application for us. Because for most of us, we've known for a long time that the gospel is available to all. That God's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to us. We know that, right? That's a basic fact. The gospel's for everybody. And yet Peter didn't know that. And while we know it, at the same time, there are still truths about change here and about why God mixes things up in our lives. So I want to give you this morning, very briefly and simply, five simple principles about change. And I want to encourage you again, write these down, interact with the text, review these later, ask the Holy Spirit right now, Lord, impress something upon my heart, impress what you want me to discover Because God will provide change in your life. He will move things around. He will shuffle the pieces of your life and of my life. So what's he want to teach us? First of all, verse 14, I believe that when God mixes things up, it's to get us out of our stubborn patterns. When God mixes things up, he wants to break us of our stubborn patterns. Now this is in verse 14. And it's interesting that Peter has this vision of this sheet, and it's let down by four corners. That represents the four points of the compass. In other words, I'm about to go to the whole world now with my gospel. And then he clearly hears the voice of the Lord saying, Peter, go kill and eat what's unclean. And here's what Peter says in the vernacular. This is the Rhodes version. He says, no way. Not going to do it. This is not a simple, oh, But Lord, I don't understand. Can you please explain it to me? No, Lord. No. Uh Uh-uh. Uh-uh. I have never eaten what's unholy. I've never eaten what's unclean. I will not do that. Now, that's interesting because Peter's usually the impulsive one, right? I I relate to Peter. He's he's the one who likes to jump at the chance to be the nonconformist. And yet here he's rigidly standing By the law, the law said in Deuteronomy 11 and Leviticus 14 that the Jews were not allowed to eat of any animal that was unclean. Those that had a split hoof, those that regurgitated their food and then ate it, fish that did not have any fins or scales, certain kinds of birds, certain kinds of insects. 
they weren't even allowed to touch the dead carcass of the animals that were considered unclean or they had to go through a cleansing process. So Peter is actually doing what any devout Jew would do. He says, I'm not going to do that. That would make me unclean. But in doing that, he's misunderstanding and really resisting the fresh insight that the Lord wanted to teach him. How often do you and I resist the leading of the Lord because it doesn't conform to what we've always done? That's a nasty question, isn't it? How often do we resist because it's not the way we've always done it? Or worse, it's not what we want to do. See, true faith has flexibility. It's adaptable to align itself to whatever change the Lord wants to bring about. And it doesn't argue, Lord, that's not the way I would do it. This command challenged every preconceived notion that Peter had about how to obey the Lord. We might even say that his objection at this point is justified, but only because it was based on what was flawed by man's failure. And when we align ourselves with what is man-centered rather than what is God-centered, it's easy for us to stubbornly get defensive about what we think is right instead of what God is calling us to do. And we hate it when it's personally uncomfortable for us. So let me ask you this morning, what are you rigid about? What What do you believe that you say, I think most people are wrong about that and I'm right? Now, you may be right. What what is it that you say, everybody should be more like me than, than what they are because they don't have it right? Now, if that's something pure, like I think everybody should trust Jesus Christ as their Savior because man's hopeless in himself, that, that's wonderful. That's honoring to the Lord. But, but if it's something centered on your personal preference, even if you think it's justified or, or something that isn't designed to honor the Lord, then you know what that is? That's a stubborn pattern. And the Lord loves to break stubborn patterns. He loves to take those things and go, boom, there, done. There's your pattern. How's it look now? We have to make sure that the things that we are convicted about and the things that we are sure about are honoring to the Lord and and justifiable through the word of God. Because if they're not, we need to get rid of them. And when we don't get rid of them, God says, I'm going to mix that up in your life. I'm going to take that and I'm I'm going to shake that like a snow globe so you'll recognize that I want you to conform to me. Second, would you see in verses 19 to 20, that God mixes things up to prove to us that we're not in control. Now that, again, is in verses 19 to 20, but look back first at verses 15 to 16, because after Peter objects the first time, the Lord says it again. And then we don't hear anything in the text about how Peter responds, but just to make sure that Peter gets the message, what does the Lord do? He repeats it a third time. Now there's something about threes with Peter, isn't there? Something about the number three and Peter. He denied Christ three times. Jesus asked him three times, do you love me? Here he's given three commands. 
But the text says he's still a little confused. He still has some doubt about the vision. He's still kind of seeking some direction. So the Lord brings how many men? Tell me. Three. You think the Lord just kind of works haphazardly? No. Three guys come. And they come from the house of Cornelius. So we say, all right, he's finally going to get it, right? Peter, okay, good. Three, here's another three. Come on, Peter. These guys have come. The Lord's confirmed this three times. Not so fast. Peter apparently is still hesitant because the Spirit has to tell him, look at verse 20, I want you to get up and go down there and accompany them without any misgivings. Now, that's a very fascinating word in the Greek language. It means without hesitation, without doubt, and here's the one that really gets me, without a hostile spirit. Now, why would the Lord have to tell Peter and warn him about the potential of a hostile spirit if pride and the need to control things doesn't come into play? How many times does the Lord say to us, you go and follow me without any misgivings? Of course, our heart has a little doubt. Of course, our heart has a little hesitation. That's natural. But how often do we do it with a hostile spirit? How many times do we have misgivings about a text or about the voice of the Lord or about the counsel of a, of a Christian friend and we develop reasons why we can't do what the Lord's calling us to do? Psalm 19 says the word of the Lord is perfect. It restores the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart, and the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. You and I are called to live by his word and live by his commands and live by his spirit because we're weak and we're selfish and he wants us to be holy and perfect. And the sooner we take our hands off and stop trying to control, the sooner we will live in the abundance of what he's already equipped us to do. So if you're a control freak like me, and you like things a certain way, and you want it to be like this and this, you know what God's going to do? He's going to say, you know what, I got, I got some special plans for you. I, I, you're a piece of work. You're my piece of work, but you're still a piece of work. Let's mix it up. But let's make sure you remember, because this is part of your humility and this is part of your walking with me by faith, let's, let's remind you that you're not in control. And the times, and this is ironic, when we just feel like things are starting to come together, God says, all right, let's mix it. The key there is don't resent that. Recognize that it's for our value. Third, God mixes things up to break down the barriers we've put up. God mixes things up to break down the barriers we put up. In verse 28, Peter goes to Cornelius' house and he finds it's full of people. Now, for some reason, Cornelius thought this will be a great opportunity for me to have a party and invite all the people to meet the apostle. You would think, because this is kind of a crucial moment in, in spiritual history, that he and Peter would have had a one-on-one at Panera and kind of talked through it and then said, well, you know, I've got some people coming over tonight at 7.30. We're going to have brownies and, and it'll be great. And we'll, we'll have, you know, Starbucks and, because we're mixing Panera and Starbucks and we like to do that. But we'll have really nice coffee. We'll sit around the couches and we'll, we'll just talk and it'll be great. 
Peter follows these three strange Italians who have come to take him from Joppa and walk 36 miles up to Caesarea for reasons he doesn't yet know because God just said, go and go without hesitation. And he gets up to Cornelius' house and he walks into Cornelius' house and it's not just this centurion sitting there in his easy chair with his coffee. The house is full and it's full of Italians. It's full of Gentiles and Peter is not supposed to be with Gentiles. So he states the obvious. I don't know about you guys, but I have a law to follow, and the law says I'm not allowed to associate with you Gentiles. Now, it is true. It is true that God had said, do not intermarry with Gentiles. And the reason he did that is because he did not want them to be influenced by the false gods of the Gentiles. It was not because of racism. It was not because of isolationism. It was not because of arrogance. Usually the only times we get restrictions from the Lord is when we're inclined to do something damaging or when we are going to be in a situation where the spiritual influences are stronger than our resistance. So God said to the Jews, don't intermarry. Because if you intermarry, you're going to follow their gods. It's exactly what happened. The biggest example of it is Solomon, who had a thousand women and who should have followed Christ because God let him build the temple. But instead, he slept with a bunch of women and started to worship their gods and fell away. So God had said that. But he did not say, you can never talk to a Gentile. The Pharisees had said that. They had changed God's command from don't intermarry to don't have anything to do with a Gentile. Don't even go to their house. Now, that's what Peter had learned. Look back at verse 28. And that's what he refers to. But the Lord had said to him as he had the vision, Peter, you have to understand now that I want everybody to be saved. So now what you've considered unclean, that barrier that the, that the Pharisees put up, that you can't even talk to them, guess what? I'm tearing it down because I want everybody to hear my gospel. There are times as believers and as churches that we put up barriers to the ministry of God. What are they for us? Bias, opinion, tradition, fear. What is it? What prevents us from serving the Lord and ministering to people the way we're called to do. Listen, no one is too good for the gospel, and no one is too bad for the gospel. He wants to save everybody. But doesn't matter what you look like, doesn't matter what you wear, doesn't matter what you're doing in your private life, it does from the standpoint of you and the Lord. But in terms of us as a church, we're supposed to be a spiritual ER. We're supposed to be the place where anybody can come and hear the gospel and then be fed and grow and nurtured and, and uplifted. And if we don't have that mindset, we will never become what we're supposed to be as a church. God wants to break down the barriers that we've put up. Fourth, verses 28 to 29, God mixes things up to reveal the open doors that we don't see. God mixes things up to reveal the open doors that we don't see. We're going to see this tonight in prayer meeting. We're going to study Colossians chapter 4. And Paul's going to tell the Colossians, pray for me that I'll have an open door for the gospel. That, that 
I'll be able to say to anybody who shows an interest, let me tell you about salvation through Jesus Christ. Now, as hard as that is to do, we need to be careful that our biases, our preconceived notions, our traditions aren't blocking our view of the opportunities that the Lord wants to give us to work through us. If, if God stripped us down to, to, to no traditions, no biases, no background, no, no religious uh, orientation in terms of what church we went to or what style of music we had or, or what uh, governmental system we had or, or, or what kind of denomination we're... If God just stripped us down of all of that and we didn't have that kind of latent bias and resistant in our hearts... What would God do? I have a bias. I grew up a certain way. And then I got exposed to different things in college. And then I went back to the church that I grew up in. And then God started to shape my heart. And God started to 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 uh, shape my theology a little bit. And then I got exposed to some other places. And it started to grow. And I started to make decisions about other things. Listen, theology isn't formed at 20. You constantly are becoming more aware as you study the Word of God. This is what God really means. This is what God says, not what man says, not what we've put up and established as this is what Christianity is. Listen, you can find a thousand people that will define that nine thousand ways. That's why we're going through Acts. Let's just look at what the church did. So I have biases and you have biases. Some of you grew up Catholic. Some of you grew up Lutheran. Some of you grew up Baptist. Some of you didn't grow up with God at all. Every one of us approaches this a different way. But I'm asking, what would the Lord do in our lives if we saw his word and his work purely? See, Peter finally came to understand that. So he says, I shouldn't be here. Based on all that I've known all my life, I should not be in this house. But listen, God told me to be here, so that's why I came without any objection. God said, you go. You go to Caesarea, Peter. You trust these guys. You go up there, and you meet this man that that I've waited for you to meet. Peter says, well, everything about that seems wrong, but I'll do it. I'll do it because you said it. Maybe we should offer the Lord less objections and more obedience. Because he's going to mix things up whether we reject him or conform anyway. But instead of seeing that as a negative, there's one last principle that's so powerful. Look back at verses 33 and 34. We'll pray. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, this is a Jewish man saying this, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. Here's the last thought. God mixes things up to show that his plans are spectacular. God mixes things up to show that his plans are spectacular. From this point on, Acts chapter 10, verse 35, up until the end of the Bible, until today, the gospel spreads like it never has before to Antioch and Phoenicia and Cyprus 
And then Paul goes on his first journey to Seleucia and Paphos and Perga and Pisidian Antioch and Lystra and Derby and Pamphylia and on and on until it gets to places we recognize like Corinth and Ephesus and Philippi and Colossae. The apostles never could have pictured that in Acts 2 and Peter couldn't even envision it in Acts 10. They had imagined that 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 God was going to work, but they couldn't imagine because their faith was still small how God was going to work. And they had to get past their discomfort and their, and their dislike of change so God could reveal his spectacular plan. Listen, the Lord is going to work. In these last days, the Lord is going to work. There's going to be a final push. I'm not being a prophet. I'm just telling you what I believe. There's going to be a final push for souls. And he's looking for people and churches that are humble and adaptable and willing. And he's looking for churches that will call on his name. So when he leads, we'll go. That's why we're going to pray about this tonight. That's why we're going to go before the Lord and say, lead us. Show us what you want as a ministry. Show us if you want a building. Show us if you want a property. We're willing to stand strong for you. Just reveal it to us. We have to keep sensing that he's about to do a mighty work. But rather than just talking about it, how willing are we to follow it? How does the Lord want to stretch you? How does the Lord want to advance this ministry? How does he want to use you as, as a witness? Does anyone in this room this morning believe that God's plans are minuscule and boring? Or do we believe that his plans are far greater than we can imagine? And if we believe, and I'm done, that his plans are far greater than we can imagine, how are we expecting it and how are we preparing? Let's close our eyes and just go before the Lord for a moment. I don't know how the Lord has spoken to you this morning, and I'm not asking for a response or anything this morning. I just want you to spend some time with the Lord. What's he saying to you this morning? None of us likes change. None of us likes things to get mixed up, and yet we've seen that God has very specific purposes for that. So as the Spirit has spoken to your heart this morning, despite me, what is he convicting you about? What's he, what's he calling you to? What, what's been the thing that's been the burr under your saddle this morning where you said, eh, that's about me? As I said at the start, you can resist that or you can obey it grudgingly. Or you can say, Lord, you're, you're asking for change and I'm willing. That's between you and the Lord this morning. I'm not asking you to raise a hand or come forward or anything. That's just between you and the Lord. Once we release that, once, once we let go of that and say, Lord, if you have to change it, change it. You've got to change me, change me. Once we release ourselves to him that way, he does amazing work. And it will be far less painful and far less trying than if we resist and he has to do it anyway. 
Just present that to him right now. Father, we love you this morning and we thank you so much that even in the times of greatest change that you never fail us and you never forsake us and that you have a gentle hand. You could be harsh with us because we deserve it. You could be harsh with us because even as people that have been saved a year, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, we still continue to sin against you. And yet you're so gracious and so patient. Your loving kindness is everlasting. And Lord, we never want to take advantage of that. We just want to honor you for it. Lord, whatever change you're instituting in our lives, I pray that we would be willing to follow it and that we would recognize that your purposes are great. Lord, as you move in our midst here as a church, we pray that you would move in a powerful way and that we would be ready and willing and have wisdom on how to follow you. Lord, we thank you for your goodness this morning. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. You are great in power and great in mercy and great in fighting the battle for us. We don't understand why you do that, but we know you love us. And Lord, we thank you for that this morning. And we love you in return, imperfectly for now. But Lord, we praise you and honor you for what you are doing. Give us strength and courage and wisdom to follow you all the days of our life. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name.